Acts chapter 12. I think most of you have heard either directly or indirectly that my family and I will be moving in a few weeks. In situations like this, there's always uh, rumors, there's always speculation, and in some churches, I'm sure not this one, but in some churches there's even gossip. Um, Let me encourage you that if you do have any questions, we had a time of question and answer on Wednesday, and hopefully that was helpful. If you do have any questions, I want you to know that I'm available. I'd be more than happy to talk with you, answer any questions you have. I know the deacons are also willing to meet with you, and so um, we want to let you know that we are available to talk and answer any questions that you do have. But this morning, our time looking at God's Word, everything that's going on, everything that's on people's minds doesn't diminish the importance of hearing from God. And so we want to focus our attention on His Word, and so help it, to help us with that, I want to lead us in a word of prayer. And as I pray, I want to challenge you and encourage you that you would pray and that you would ask God to help you hear from Him this morning because that's the most important thing we can do is to hear from God. So let's bow together. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank You for Your Word that guides us as individuals. God, it guides us as a church. Um, it provides strength, it provides comfort, it is challenging, it is convicting, it is life-changing, its power is never-ending. It is the two-edged sword that we need in our lives. God, I pray this morning, even though there may be a lot on our minds, a lot taking place in our families, maybe even where we work, situations that no one else knows about, God, we thank you that you invite us to come and cast our care and concern on you. But I pray now for the next few minutes that we would understand the importance of your word, the importance of hearing from you, and that we would be able to focus our attention, and that you would speak to us, and that as we often say, that we would not simply come and be challenged, that we would not simply come and uh, be reminded of some Bible stories, but God, that you would change us, that you would conform us into the image and likeness of your Son, so that as we go out, we can be lights in a dark world that desperately needs you. We love you. We thank you for your love for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we are again in the book of Acts this morning, we see what is a familiar and interesting and in some ways a tragic chain of events, a tragic story. I want to jump right in and kind of give an overview. Pastor Jason read this uh, part of this chapter to us a few moments ago, but you're familiar with this, right? Peter has been thrown in prison. He is in prison. The angel comes. The doors open. The guards do not, are not aware of what's happening, and the angel leads Peter out of prison, and it as we heard in what Pastor Jason read a few moments ago, as he's being led out of prison, he doesn't know whether he's having a dream or whether what he's going through and what he's facing is actually happening. But when the angel disappears, he has come face to face with this reality that I am part of a miracle. I mean, what would it be like to understand that you have been part of a miracle, that God has used you and done something for you in an amazing and miraculous way? And so as he's walking out of prison, he realizes God has set me free. I mean, I was reading along as Pastor Jason was reading. They come to the gate. The gate opens by itself. I mean, what would it be like to experience that? Peter then goes to where he knows his friends, where he knows the church is gathered praying for him. And he goes and he knocks on the door. And we're going to read what happens when he knocks on the door and they come to the door to let him in. In fact, they're praying for his release, but when he comes and knocks on the door, they leave him standing out in the street because they don't actually believe that he was released. We're going to talk about some lessons we can learn from that. But this is an amazing story. But though, even though we're familiar with it, it falls in line with this narrative of what's taking place through the book of Acts that God's mission that he has given us 
must be a commitment. We talked last week that the, our God-given mission is connected to a Christ-centered message. And that as believers and as a church, we must pursue the mission that God has given us. And this continues this morning. And so if you have your bulletin on the back as an outline, I want to dive right into this. And I want us to see a number of truths about the purposes and the power of God. The purposes and the power of God. If you're taking notes, let me give you number one. Your first truth this morning is that God's purposes will be contested. God's purposes will be contested. I want you to notice verse starting in verse one again. About the time that King Herod cruelly attacked some who belonged to the church, Christians, he killed James, John's brother, with the sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter too during the days of unleavened bread. After the arrest, he put him in prison and assigned four squads of four soldiers each to guard him, intending to bring him out to the people after Passover. And I want you to picture and I want you to imagine the cultural atmosphere at this time. It pleased the Jews that James had been put to death with the sword. I mean, what, is, what, what kind of culture is it that celebrates the execution of a follower of Christ? This is the reality of the culture that this early church exists in. The fact that they are celebrating, the general population is celebrating the fact that James has been put to death. Most likely lost his life. As long, he's not the only one. Many others did as well. But when Herod saw that it pleased the Jews, you notice what it said. His plan was to bring Peter out. What do you think his plan was for Peter? To kill him. Same thing. He saw that this pleased the Jews. In his mind, well, if this pleased the Jews, it increases my popularity. I'm going to go around and arrest all the Christians that I possibly can and do the exact same thing to them. Last week, we saw that the church can face criticism and opposition and disruption from within. This week, we see that sometimes attacks come from outside the church. Picture this. These Attacks that the church is facing in Acts chapter 12 are from those outside the church, those who are looking into the church, who don't understand what the church is about, who are not committed to the mission of the church. All they know is that these little Christs that we talked about last week are living in a way that in their mind is diminishing their power, diminishing their authority. They look at this and say, we cannot have it. We must put Christians to death. James is... Most likely beheaded. Peter is arrested facing the exact same fate. One is delivered, one is not. You know, sometimes we can look at passages such as this, and we'll talk about this more in a minute, and we can see Peter, and we can, in a way, claim a promise that says, God's going to deliver me. You know, sometimes when opposition comes from outside and there is pressure on out, from outside the church and there is in threat of danger, threat of death, threat of torture out, from outside the church, sometimes God's plan is not to deliver. We're going to read in a few moments from Hebrews, but I want us to understand that sometimes God chooses to deliver and sometimes God doesn't. Notice that these attacks are brutal. Verse 2, James is put to death. Peter is arrested. This is not some mild opposition where somebody says something that hurt James's feelings. I mean, this is a real, in-depth, dangerous persecution that if, if we read throughout the other parts of the book of Acts, caused the Christians to scatter. They were fearful for their lives. Many of them knew, if I stay and I keep living for Christ and I keep gathering with the church and I keep living out my faith, there is a real threat that I will be executed. This was severe. 
This was not something that they just kind of brushed off to the side. This persecution, though, we should be reminded, is not uncommon. If you hold your place here, I want you to flip over to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. I'm going to read this, and then hopefully we'll gain a little bit more of an understanding of what persecution can be like. Hebrews chapter 11 is sometimes called heroes of the faith or the halls of the Christian faith because there's so many people, especially early on, that are named who did great things for God, that they were facing torture, facing death. God delivered them. But then we get down to the very end of the chapter, starting in verse 32. Here's what the author says. And what more can I say? Time is too short for me to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the raging fire, escaped death of the sword, gained strength after being weak, became mighty in battle, put out foreign armies to flight. Women received their dead. They were raised to life again. Some of them, let's pause right there, though. Middle of verse 35. Women received their dead. They were raised to life again. Now, if we just stop right there, that's victory, right? I mean, that's victorious living. All these wonderful things that we see happening, but we cannot stop there. Some men were tortured, not accepting release, so they might gain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourging as well as bonds and imprisonments. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They died by the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in the deserts and on mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. I mean, do you see the, the, this stark difference? In this one chapter, in this one set of about 12 verses, you see people who experienced deliverance and experienced miracles and experienced victory and saw God do amazing things in them, through them, and for them. But in those exact same paragraph, you also see believers who are also characterized by faith, who endured all kind of affliction. Imagine being alive and being sawn in two. Imagine knowing that you are about to be beheaded. Imagine knowing that you have absolutely nothing. It has all been taken away. And so you are destitute, wandering in mountains, living in caves, searching for a place to lay low in a hole in the ground. This was the reality for many Christians. Sometimes God delivers, and sometimes God doesn't. Sometimes God provides miracles that show you he is at work. And other times God demonstrates his faithfulness by prompt the giving you the promise of eternal reward. We look at Peter, we look at James, we should be reminded that you are, many times Christians will face persecution. And sometimes God will deliver and sometimes God chooses not to, but it is all for his glory. I, in my office I have a book, maybe many of you have probably read this, Fox's Book of Martyrs. Any of you ever flipped through that? In this book, Two, three hundred pages is page after page after page after page of people throughout the history of Christendom who have stood for Christ, lived for Christ, were obedient to Christ, but then also lost their life because of their commitment to Christ. Thousands of people lose their lives simply because they are living for Christ. I've also got biographies on my shelf, such as Richard Wormbrand, who was imprisoned for years and years and years, tortured severely, but then God released him and he started an organization geared towards helping those who are facing severe persecution because of their faith around the world. Sometimes God delivers and sometimes he doesn't. But in all cases, what God does is for God's glory. 
What God does is to further his cause, to further his name, to further his mission. Never think, listen, never think that opposition means that God isn't working. Never think that persecution means that God has forgotten about you. Never think that the hardships you face, and when you hear stories or you see pictures of Christians who have been put to death and pastors who have been tortured and others who have been kind of cast out and their churches bombed, never think when you hear stories like that on the news that that means that God has forgotten about them. Because in those regions around the world where the persecution is most severe, and in those places around the world where the hostility is the highest, it is in those places that God is blessing the most and the church is flourishing. God's pers- persecution you face never means that God is not working. In fact, many times it is what God uses to Work And we're going to see that as we go through this. But understand, first of all, that God's purposes will be contested. There will be people who stand against you because you stand with Christ. And that's the key, isn't it? There will be people who will oppose you because you stand with the person of Jesus Christ. There will be people who will offer persecution to you because of your relationship and your obedience to the person of Jesus Christ. But never think that that opposition, that persecution means that God is not working. Because as we'll see in just a moment, God is always at work. So as you see this persecution, how did God's people respond? Number two, notice that God's people prayed. Look at verse 5. Acts chapter 12, verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison. Notice this next part of the verse. But prayer was being made earnestly to God for him by the church. Their response, their knee-jerk response was to pray. Their knee-jerk response was to do nothing else but to gather and pray. When they saw the persecution, when they saw the opposition, when they saw that this, this Herod was coming in and putting Christians to death and the church was scattering, their response was not to scatter. Their response was not to fight. Their response was not to complain to God. Their response was to pray. It was to pray. That was their focus. That was their goal. Let's gather together. Let's pray. Imagine the atmosphere and the attitude of the people. They had seen James put to death. They knew that they had no one else to turn to but God. They knew that it was real likelihood that they would be arrested and maybe even they would be put to death. But I want us to break down this verse 5 because I think there's a lot that we can learn in this. Notice, first of all, that they prayed to God. They prayed to God. Notice verse 5. Acts chapter 12, notice verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but prayer was being made earnestly to God. This was who their prayer was focused on. Listen, even in difficult times when persecution is coming and there's the threat of death and there is opposition, the focus must be on God. We must focus on who God is and what God has done. Not only did they pray to God, notice secondly, they prayed together. They prayed together, verse 5 again. So Peter was kept in prison, but prayer was being made earnestly to God for him By the church, the church rallied. What unified the church and their response to the persecution was their united desire to pray. It wasn't just a select couple who wanted to pray. It wasn't just a few people on the side. It wasn't just some church leaders who wanted to pray. The church together, unified, came together and called out to God. They prayed to God. Prayer was made by the church. Next, they prayed earnestly. Again, you've noticed verse 5, so Peter was kept in prison, but prayer was being made earnestly. This was not a half-hearted prayer. 
This was not a prayer that said, God, thank you for this food. Be with the missionaries around the world. This was not a half-hearted, insincere. This was a committed, heartfelt, sincere, meaningful, earnest time, fervent time of prayer where they were focused, intensely focused on committing this time to say, God, we need you. We cannot deliver Peter. God, we need you to do what only you can do. God, you have to work. You have to intervene. You have to do what only you can do. It was acknowledgement that they were relying fully on God because they didn't have the answers. When James was beheaded, when Peter was thrown in prison, they looked to God and said, God, we can't fix this. We need your help. We need your intervention. We need you to do what only you can do. They, fourthly, they prayed specifically. They prayed specifically for Peter. So Peter was kept in prison, but prayer was being made earnestly to God for him. This was the focus of the prayer. Yes, their prayer was to God, but they were interceding for Peter. They understood what he was facing. They understood the danger that he was, in their mind, maybe even he was being tortured. And in their mind, maybe the next day he was going to be put to death. They prayed specifically for him. But I want you to notice this last truth. They prayed without belief. Here's where the story kind of gets interesting to me. I want us to skip down to verse 12. We understand that he's been arrested. We understand that he's been released. But I don't want us to miss this truth. It is possible to pray to God with those in your church earnestly on behalf of someone else but not actually believe that God is going to answer your prayer. In verse 12, Acts chapter 12, in verse 12, Peter had just been released. And I want us to begin, I want us to pick up there. When he had realized this, when he realized he'd been released, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many had assembled and were praying. He knocked at the door in the gateway, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer. She recognized Peter's voice, and because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing in the gateway. Notice the people's response. These are the people who have gathered to pray to God earnestly on behalf of Peter. Verse 15, you're crazy. You're crazy, they told her. But she kept insisting that it was true. Then they said, it's his angel. So picture what's happening. James has been put to death. Peter is in prison, probably facing death the very next day. The church understands the the gravity of the situation. They rally together. They come together. They meet together to pray to God earnestly on behalf of Peter, and they're pouring out their hearts. God, please deliver Peter. God, please set him free. God, we can't fix this. God, do what only you can do. And God had answered their prayer. Peter is miraculously released. He comes and knocks at the door. The the young girl comes, sees who it is, runs back into the group that's praying, interrupts their prayer, and says, Peter's at the gate. He's answered our prayer. God's answered our prayer. And they look at her and say, you're crazy. We're, we're going to keep praying. Leave us alone. I wonder how often you and I pray without belief. I was thinking through this, and I was like, you know what? I can't believe they would do that. I mean, how would they pray without belief? How could you go and know, seeing everything they've seen in the first part of Acts, especially chapter 4 and chapter 5, where God had delivered and God had preserved life and God had performed miracles, and now you're praying to this same God, asking him to intervene, asking him to work. You see the reality of a horrible situation, and you're saying, God, please deliver. God, do the miraculous again. And God answers your prayer, and you're presented with the proof of that. And your response is, God, I mean, you wouldn't do that. I was thinking about this the other day, and I, I, I found an example in my own life. And I was talking with Jason about this the other day. Um, 
Not too long ago, or several months ago, we had to take Jonathan to a walk-in clinic after hours. He had a temperature of about, a, it was 103.8 was his temperature. And so we said, you know what? We're going to take him to a walk-in clinic. So we took him to a walk-in clinic. And about three months later, so those times when you go to the mailbox and you don't like what's in it, we had a bill for $1,500. And so we submitted it to the insurance, and we got a letter from the insurance that said, your claim is denied. That was nice, wasn't it? And so I decided I'm going to, write, I'm going to go through the appeals process. I'm going to write a letter. So I wrote this nice, long, well-worded, specific letter and put it in the mail. And as I'm putting it in the mail, I tell Dana, they're not going to approve this. And so I, Dana and I both independently of each other prayed, you know, God, this $1,500 bill is laying here. And by, you know how you get those letters? This is your second warning. And then I, we're trying to let them know, okay, we, we've re, we've, we're peeling. Y'all been there, right? Been, been in the midst of all that. And so the whole time I'm, uh, I'm saying they're not going to approve it, but I'm praying, God, please help them to approve this pill. Help, help the insurance to cover this $1,500. And so Dana sends me a text on Friday. I, I was sitting in Pastor Jason's office. I, 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 she sent me a text of something from Blue Cross Blue Shield. She said, do you think this is the answer to our appeals letter? And I said, probably. And I look at Jason and said, they're not going to approve it. I've been praying about it for months. <laughs> they're not going to approve it. I get home, open the letter, and they approve the appeal. And I'm studying this and reading this, and I'm thinking, I'm just like those Christians. I'm sitting there praying, God, please intervene. I I can't fix this. I can't do anything with this. God, I'm praying for you to do this. Do what only you can do. And then the next breath out of my mouth, after I finish praying for God to intervene, is he's not going to do that. Praying without belief. Praying without faith. Christians in this church in Acts 12 were praying for God to work, but they didn't actually believe that God was going to work. How often is your prayer characterized like that? When you're praying for God to do something, maybe, maybe in your own mind, you're praying for someone in your family that you've been praying for for 10 years to accept Christ as their Savior, and you've been praying and praying and praying, and maybe now you're being tempted as you're praying to say they're never going to accept Christ. Don't lose heart. Pray with faith. Pray with belief. Maybe it's a financial situation that you're facing. You're praying that God would intervene, but in the back of your mind, you're saying, this isn't going to work out. Pray with faith. Pray with faith. Maybe there's, there's a family situation, a relationship situation. You're praying, God, work in this. God, do what only you can do. Intervene as only you can intervene. God, we don't have the answers. Intervene in this situation. And you're praying, and you're earnestly praying and sincerely praying, but in the back of your mind when you finish praying, you really don't believe God's going to show up. Pray with faith. Pray with belief. Never believe the, the lies of the devil that says you can pray to God, but there's no need to actually believe that God is going to work wrong. If we actually believe in who God is and that we are praying to the God who spoke the universe into existence, who gives us the very life and the breath to be here this morning, if that is the God that we are praying to, then we can believe that he can and he will work. Have faith in who God is. Never lose heart. Never lose sight that God does answer prayer. That verse 5 to me is an amazing verse because it reminds us, I mean, I even think sometimes on Wednesday evenings, we have prayer lists, names and names and names on the prayer list, and I know many of you pray through that list every week, which I think is a wonderful thing to do, but I wonder how often do we pray through those names and there's no real belief or faith that God's going to answer those prayers. Have faith in 
God. Believe that God is going to work. Sometimes he will answer your prayer exactly the way that you've asked. And other times he will answer your prayer and it will be different than how you've been praying. But in all times, God is at work. And in all situations, God deserves the glory. Number three, I want you to notice that God's power is unstoppable. God's power is unstoppable. These next few verses in our text show the power and the deliverance of Peter, the power of God in the deliverance of Peter. You saw in verse 6 through 11, Pastor Jason read this earlier, how the angel comes in and his, his shackles fall off of him and the gate opens. But what I want you to understand is that God's power is unstoppable. When, when, when God shows up, there's nothing anybody can do about it. When God shows up, when God showed up, when the angel of the Lord showed up, the guards had no power. There was nothing the guards could do. There was nothing anyone else could do to stand in the way of God's power. God's power is unstoppable. Satan cannot stand in the way of God. Do you believe that? Satan cannot stand in the way of God. Atheists cannot hinder God's plan. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. Here in the power of Christ I stand. Why do we stand in the power of Christ? Why do we sing about the power of Christ? Why are we confident in the power of Christ? Because we understand that in the last day, he will be victorious and his plans will not be deterred. We can be confident in the power of God because his power is unstoppable. That's why we believe in one of our doctrines that we believe is eternal security. We believe that once we are saved, we are always saved. Why? Because no man is able to pluck us from our Father's hand. His power is unstoppable and for that I am thankful. For that I am thankful. Number four, I want you to notice that God's punishment cannot be avoided. Look at verse 19. After Herod went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there, let's pause there for a second. We have to know a little bit about who this Herod is. One of the confusing things in Scripture is there's many people called Herod. Before I read any further, let me give you a little background on who this Herod is. Herod's father had been murdered excuse me, Herod's father had been murdered by his father. All these Herods had a history of murder and anger and bitterness. Herod's father had been murdered by his father, who was Herod the Great, the guy who murdered all the babies at Jesus' birth. After the death of his father, the Herod that we're reading about this morning went to Rome to be educated. And it was there that he became close to the imperial family. But all throughout his life, just like in his father's and his grandfather's, there was this history of murder. There was this history of hatred. So the idea that this Herod is executing believers is nothing new. He's just living up to his family name. This is what they did. But let's continue reading verse 20. He had been very angry with the Tyrrhenians and Sidonians. Together they presented themselves before him. They won over Blastus, who was in charge of the king's bedroom, and through him they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food from the king's country. So on an appointed day, dressed in royal robes and seated on the throne, Herod delivered a public address to them. The assembled people, the people listening to his address, began to shout, "'It's the voice of God and not a man.'" You understand what they're saying? They're hearing what Herod is saying and saying, this is God speaking, not man. And at once, an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give the glory to God, and he became infected with worms and died. The way this is worded indicates that he became infected with worms, and those worms immediately ate him to the point where he immediately died. This was not a long process. He became infected with worms, and a couple minutes later, he was dead. 
He was infected with worms. What a way to go. And they ate him to the point where he lost his life. The punishment was severe. It was sudden. Herod was immediately in pain, immediately eaten by worms, and within a couple of minutes, his life ended. Listen, this should be a warning to us. When someone rejects God, punishment cannot be avoided. You say the punishment may not be immediate, but understand that the punishment of rejecting the person of Jesus Christ is severe. I mean, we, as believers, we believe what the Bible says that There is a literal heaven and a literal hell, and those who reject Christ through their choice of rejecting Christ will spend all of eternity in a literal place that the Bible calls hell. That is severe punishment for the rejection of Christ, but it is fair and it is just punishment. The reality this morning is that none of us deserve the love of Christ. None of us deserve the love of God. None of us deserve eternal life. We all, if God gave us what you deserve, gave me what I deserve, we would all be facing an eternity in hell. The judgment of God cannot be avoided. Hebrews says that it is appointed unto men once to die, and then after this, you might know what it says? The judgment. It is appointed unto men once to die, and then the judgment. The judgment of God cannot be avoided. Listen carefully. If you are here this morning, and in your heart you have rejected God, you have rejected salvation, you have rejected forgiveness, you have rejected the love of God, you have rejected what Christ has done on the cross, you are rejecting the offer of forgiveness and the offer of salvation and the offer of eternal life, I want you to know as plainly as I can state it this morning that God's judgment and punishment is unavoidable. Sometimes people think, well, I can reject God, and then on my, on my deathbed, maybe I'll still have time to give my life to Him. There's no guarantee. If you reject God today, it is very possible that you will have no more opportunities. And the, re- the result of rejecting God and rejecting Christ and rejecting salvation is then the judgment of God. Which is why I plead with you, respond to the message of Christ today while there is time to do so. Respond to the message of Christ. Understand that if you reject Him and you die in your trespasses, you die in your sins, that there then is no more opportunity. God's punishment cannot be avoided. Number five, let me give you this last truth. God's purposes will continue. God's purposes will continue. Verse 24, in my mind, is one of the most amazing verses in all the book of Acts. Acts 12, verse 24. Then, let's pause right there, then. Then God's message flourished. That word then means in spite of everything else that was happening. So what all was happening? The church was being persecuted. James was beheaded. Peter had been in prison and released. The the Christians are scattering. The church is in real danger. So this is the atmosphere. And so as all of this is happening, notice what it says. Then God's message flourished and multiplied. In this culture and in this environment where the church was being persecuted and Christians were being put to death and there were people being beheaded and imprisoned and the church was scattering and this intense Dangerous persecution came on. In the midst of that, the message of God flourished and the message of God multiplied. Verse 25, after they had completed their relief mission, Barnabas and Saul returned to Jerusalem, taking along John, who was called Mark. Verse 24 again is amazing. Peter had been in prison. James was put to death. In the midst of all of this persecution, God was at work. And as a result, God's message flourished. 
There continued to be people who gave their life to Christ. The church continued to expand. Understand something. Nothing can stop the advance of the gospel. Nothing can stop the work of God. In, in Herod's mind and in the Jews' mind, you know what? All we have to do is we have to arrest them and we have to execute them and we have to push the, put them to death. And if we do all of this, then God's work will stop wrong. Why? Because God's power is unstoppable. In the midst of their persecution, the church flourished. You know that in today, the countries that are facing the most persecution of believers is also the place where the church is growing the most rapid. China, churches are having to meet underground, so to speak. They cannot be known. You can't go to China and put up a sign on your door that says First Baptist Church. They'll knock down your door. They will come in. They will arrest you. Persecution is severe, but do you know in China the church is growing more rapidly than just about anywhere else in the world? I had a pastor friend recently, and I won't mention his name or mention where he was, but he was on a humanitarian mission in North Korea. Christians are persecuted in North Korea. Christians are put to death in North Korea. But he said he heard countless stories of how the church is flourishing. You go to Iran, the church is flourishing. All around the world, the places where where the persecution of Christians is most severe is also the exact places where God is working and God is blessing. Why? Because God's power cannot be stopped and God's purposes will continue which is a great encouragement to us. So, so what, what, what's the call to us? We, be, we, we respond with faithfulness. We respond by saying God's power is unstoppable and God's purposes will continue. So no matter what persecution may come at me and no matter what threats may come at me and no matter what opposition I face, I will be faithful to the person of God and the message of Christ because I understand that God is always at work. And even when I may not be able to see it, I... I I guarantee you there are people in North Korea and Iran and Christians in some of these places around the world that are facing persecution, that they go through moments in their life, moments in their week, moments in their day where they are fearful for their lives and they can be tempted to think, is it worth it? They can be tempted to think, I wonder if God is really at work. Why am I doing all this? Why am I risking my life for Christ? Why am I going to this church and attempting to build this church when I know that I can be put to death or my spouse can be put to death or my kids can be tortured? Why am I doing this? And I'm sure there are people who are tempted to say, it's not worth it. But time and time again, God keeps impressing on them and reminding them that his purposes cannot be stopped. His power is unstoppable. His purposes will continue. And so those believers in these difficult places around the world, they are faithful to God, and they proclaim Christ, and they focus on God's word, and they minister to others, and they disciple others. And as a result, the church is flourishing, flourishing. One person said that if the way said that the way to get rid of Christianity in a country is to give it freedom and to give it money. And that will destroy the church better than any persecution ever could. Another author I read not too long ago said the number one thing that could happen in America to cause the church to flourish is persecution. Because in the midst of persecution, it weeds out those who are just going through the motions. It weeds out those who are not really committed. 
And so when you look around the world, and and I I want you to do this, as you listen to the news and you hear of Christians losing their lives and you hear of churches being bombed and you hear of torture taking place for the cause of Christ and you hear of all these things taking place, yes, you pray for them. But then in the same breath, you also thank God that his purposes will continue. His purposes will always continue. Satan cannot stop the work of God. And so our response then is to be faithful to him and to look to God and say, God, no matter what opposition comes in my life and no matter what persecution comes in my life, and God, even if we get to a place in our country where I'm, I'm fearful for my life simply because I'm following you and living for you, God, no matter what happens, help me to be faithful to you because I know nothing will stop your purposes. And God, I want to be a part of your plan and I want to be a part of your work. So maybe this morning you're looking at this and you're saying, well, how, how do I respond? Maybe you're looking at this and you're thinking, what, what's the response that God is calling me to? I want to go back to our second point this morning, where God's people prayed. Where God's people prayed. In these places around the world where persecution is great and God's purposes are continuing and the church is flourishing, in there there's also something interesting that's happening. The people are praying. Every great revival in the history of mankind has had a huge component of prayer. Huge component of prayer. And these people that are praying, they're praying, and they're praying with faith, and they're praying with belief, and they are uniting around their belief in God and their belief in who God is, and they are coming together, and they are praying. Their prayer unites them. And there are going to be things that happen in your life, in family situations in your life, in financial situations, in career situations. You're going to be looking at that and saying, what in the world do I do? Let me challenge you and encourage you. Respond with prayer. And not a prayer that looks to God and says, okay, I'm going to pray, but God, I really don't believe. But a prayer that says, God, I am putting all of my heart out here. And God, I'm relying on you fully. And God, I believe that you will do only what you can do. And God, I trust you. And so I'm not going to lean on my own understanding. I'm going to commit all my ways to you. God, do what only you can do. There are some of us this morning that our knee-jerk response is to try to fix it on our own, try to fight it, try to complain. Our number one response in all situations must be a response of prayer. You've heard me say this before, and I believe it. Too many believers treat prayer as the spare tire that's in the trunk in case of emergency rather than the steering wheel that should guide us everywhere we go. And there are some of you this morning that you simply need to pray with faith, pray, believing, pray, asking God to do what only God to do. The verse in the Old Testament says, be still and know what? that I am God. That verse, be still, means to stop, be quiet, and pray. So I want to challenge you to do this morning is simply to pray with faith, with belief. Will you stand with me this morning? We read this familiar story, and we need to be reminded that prayer changes things. Will you spend time in prayer this morning? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your love. We thank you for all that you do for us. And God, even in those times where we face persecution and those places, God, even now around the world where churches are meeting right now and they're fearful for their lives, they're fearful of what might happen. 
God, I pray that you would help us, even though we may not be in a situation like that, but that we would respond with prayer. And God, forgive us of those times, which I'm sure we're all guilty at some point, those times where we pray and we really don't have faith. Those times we pray and we really don't believe. God, I pray that you would help us to pray with a heart that says we believe and we trust and we have faith in who you are and what you can do because we know your purposes will continue no matter what. I'll finish praying in a moment. Just keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed. We're not going to sing this morning. I just want you to pray. Whatever burden is on your heart this morning, pray. Whatever need you have this morning, pray. Whatever trouble you're facing in your life, pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come to you and lay our burdens at your feet. God, I pray that whatever burdens on our heart this morning, whatever challenge we're facing in relationships, careers, finances, whatever it is that's that's weighing heavy on us today, God, I pray that we would simply lay that at your feet, believing that you will work, that you will intervene, that you will do only what you can do because we understand that your power is unstoppable and your purposes will continue. And so, God, we pray that. We pray that your purposes will continue and that more people would know you and worship you as a result of our testimony and witness in a dark dark world. We love you this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.